If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we'll be in the Word this morning. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and then in the past few months, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, a famous collection of, of teachings that Jesus gives. And this morning, we're actually going to be finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to wrap up this uh, portion of Scripture. And it wraps up with a famous but terrifying portrait of two men who lay their lives on different kinds of foundation. And one foundation lasts, and the other dissolves and crumbles. And uh, one of the things that we talk about with the Sermon on the Mount is how Jesus Christ tells us that what it means to be part of the kingdom of God can be summed up in this word wholeness, or you could maybe say integrity, that we practice what we preach, that what we believe flows out of our fingertips, that we have integrity of being. And Jesus, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, begins to really force the issue. And he knows, he says, a lot of you guys, you're following me, and you say all the right things, and you say you want to follow me, and you love me, and you believe in me, but I know that there are frauds among you. And so he gives some very piercing, terrifying portraits to warn us about false faith and to challenge us to consider whether we have truly built our life upon the foundation of Christ or upon sinking sand. I'm going to read this portion of Scripture starting in verse 24 of chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Let's pray together for our time in the Word. Our Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes, help us to consider our foundations. If there is false faith, Lord, Reveal it that we might truly build our lives on the solid rock of your Son. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a story about a a famous missionary. Um, He grew up in a small town, and he spent his life uh, preaching to different towns around the area, the gospel. He had had, uh, been disciple for many years was uh, well known for his knowledge of scripture. And there's some accounts where he even performed miracles, and he would go around with some of his uh, friends, and they'd go around preaching the gospel, and they would go around, and they would actually see conversions, and they would see fruit from his ministry. And one of the things that, that really marked out this missionary was he had a deep love for the poor. He really cared about the poor. In fact, there's one instance where he saw this woman, she had taken this expensive jar of perfume, and she used it to worship Jesus. And he criticized her because he said, you could have sold that, and you could have used it to feed poor people. 
And so he was just known for that. He was very zealous for the Lord. His name, you can actually read about his biography in the Bible. His name is Judas Iscariot. He's the one who betrayed Christ. And he betrayed Christ with a kiss. Isn't that amazing? One of the original 12, Judas, three years with the disciples, none of them knew that he was the betrayer. Jesus knew, though. And in one moment of decision, he he betrays Christ, and it reveals that he had built his life on sand, that his faith was a false foundation. It was not true faith. As Jesus wraps up his Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the narrow gate and the wide gate. He talks about false prophets. He says there will be people in the last day who will say, Lord, Lord, and the Lord will say, I don't know who you are. You keep using my name. I don't know who you are. And Jesus is trying to say that there will be frauds among us. And he's giving them a shock to the system to consider whether they might be one of those frauds. And you could be very religious. You could be zealous for ministry. You could be one of the apostles. And you could be built on sinking sand. And Jesus wants people to know that the only true foundation is built upon him. But what is the evidence that your foundation is on Christ? And he says very clearly, those who have built their lives on Christ will be marked by this. You will hear the word and you will do it. You will practice what you preach. There will be evidence of fruit in your life. Think about that hymn we, we, we'll, we'll sing many times, On Christ's Solid Rock I Stand. It's a great comfort, but it's also a warning. So what's the second part? All other ground, sinking sand. Not slightly less hard, but still okay foundation. Sinking sand. Those are the two options. There's no neutrality with that. And Jesus presses the point by giving two marks of genuine faith. First, the first mark is that Christians are marked by good fruit. And the second one is Christians are marked by endurance, an endurance that lasts until the end. Let's look at that first one. Christians are marked by good fruit. And when he starts off and he says, here's my lesson. I want you to get this straight in your mind. Those who hear and do my word, those are my true disciples. Right? Their good works are going to express a genuine faith. And then he gives the example to illustrate that. But before we go into that, you might think to yourself, well, is this, is this works righteousness? Is he saying that you have to obey in order to be saved? Do you have to do good works hit a certain bar of good works, and then you, when you cross that, you can become a Christian. No. Now, that's actually anti-Christianity. The message of Christianity is you're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by His grace alone. It's a work of God. It's by His pure, unmerited favor. But that faith, that trust in the Lord, never comes alone. That faith in which you believe will necessarily produce fruit. And this is why before this section, Jesus goes through this entire picture. He says, how do you know that there's going to be, like there's false 
preachers around you, false teachers around you, how do you discern who the, who the, who the real deal is and who is a fraud? And he says, pay attention to their fruit. And he gives the illustration. A healthy tree is going to produce healthy fruit. Right? And notice the relationship. Healthy fruit reveals the health of the tree. You can look at a tree. You don't know if it's healthy yet until it bears fruit. The fruit is an evidence of the life of the tree. But you can't take that healthy fruit and staple it onto a dead tree and make that tree come alive. In other words, healthy fruit reveals the health of its root, but a healthy fruit can't make a dead root come alive. In the same way, good works reveal a genuine faith, but good works can't make us born again. Good works can't merit the favor of God. It is a manifestation of our genuine faith. And throughout the Protestant tradition, there's really three parts of faith. The first, part, the first part is knowledge. It's hearing the gospel. Here's the gospel, the facts, the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he did in history. And then there is your assent. You go, I believe it. That is true. But there's a third part. It's an actual entrusting of yourself to that truth. And when those three are present, the necessary outworking of that will be obedience. Not perfect obedience, but it will be fruit. You will hear his word and you will have a life marked by doing it. That's the evidence that those three are present. And there's a terrifying passage in the book of James. There's a lot of terrifying passages in the book of James. But this one is one particular one where he says, you believe God is one, you do well. Gold star for you. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, you might know the fact, you might even assent that it's true, and you're just as far as demons get. But unless you entrust yourself Unless you entrust yourself to him, you are not a follower, right? And he says that's the difference. The demons don't entrust themselves to him. And the mark that all three are there is that you will bear good fruit. And notice the demons, they even have an emotional response. They know that God is one and they shudder. They're afraid. They have an emotional response. It doesn't matter. The proof is in the pudding. Is there fruit coming from your life. You can have a big song and dance, a big religious show, all these things, but if there is no marks of obedience, Jesus says, that is evidence of false faith. It's a very sobering reminder. And that gets us to the illustration where he compares two people. There's the wise man and there's the foolish man. The word, uh, the Greek word for foolish, it's uh, moros, which is where we get the word moron, right? He's dull, He's foolish. He doesn't understand. You know, the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is all about paying attention to the world and paying attention to relationships and the word of God and, and commerce and, and how people interact and, and, and navigating those things skillfully. Wisdom is about applying what you know. That's the wise person. He practically applies what he knows in the ordinary affairs of life. But the fool is different. He just wants to be known for hearing rather than doing. He's all about the external appearances, rather the internal reality. Uh, in, in Proverbs chapter 18, it talks about how a, how a fool uh, takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Right? He loves talking. He loves talking a big game, but there's no actual action. You know, he's the person I heard this uh, phrase, uh, he may not always be right, but he ain't never wrong. And I'm like, huh. And we probably know people like that. Maybe, maybe you're that person. Right? And the Bible says you're a fool. 
You just love pontificating, talking, but there's no application. And you have to think about how foolish this foolish man is, right? If you're going to build a house, why wouldn't you consider the foundations? The foundations are unseen, but they're the most important part. You can see the foolishness in his efforts. He's not thinking through this properly. He's just blabbering on and on and on. And he says that kind of person is a person who does not bear fruit. That's the person who just hears the word and never does anything about it. And this is a, this is a dig at uh, the Pharisees. Those are the common uh, opponents of Jesus throughout his ministry. And one of the things that we think about, when we think about the Pharisees, we think about they're the guys who are always cranky. They're the ones who care too much about obedience and not enough about grace. That's not what Jesus says, though. He says the problem with them is they don't actually care about obedience at all. They just care about seeming like they're obedient. They just care about appearing a certain way and praying in front of everybody and having the long robes and sitting in the nice places at the feasts and being known for their wonderful piety. But Jesus cuts them down to size. Later on in Matthew 23, 3 to 4, Jesus says to the Pharisees, about the Pharisees to his disciples, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, the problem with them is that they're not righteous. They preach, but they don't practice. There's no integrity. Frauds. And one of the things that I was reading about this term called stolen valor. It's interesting. It's in the, in the, it's in the military world. People talk about people who pretend to have served. They'll wear the badges, the stars, all that stuff, and they'll talk about their time as a Navy SEAL or as a Marine, but they've never actually served. And actual genuine veterans, they call that stolen valor, and they're horribly offended because what are they doing? They're going around acting as if they had sacrificed, as if they were courageous, receiving all the benefits but not having the reality. And they are being deceitful. They are It's not a true, genuine righteousness, and that's what characterizes the Pharisees. It's all about appearances. There is no reality, and Jesus rebukes that. He calls that a false foundation. You might like the aesthetic of Christianity. You might like the feel of Christianity, what Christianity offers you. I remember I saw there was a, there was a, a, a commentary in the Sermon on the Mount, and it was like the Sermon on the Mount, like the, the key to a successful life. And it's like how you can find life-affirming principles in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, how do you, I, I would love to have seen how they talked about the narrow road and the broad road and the false fruit and the, all these kinds of terrifying warnings in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the problem is people want to have Jesus on their terms. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he confronts the world and says, first of all, I'm the Lord of the universe, I'm the Lord of the world, and everything is on my terms. And it's amazing how, it's, you can imagine your disciple, you're like, Jesus, when you said like, we have to kill sin, pluck out our eye, and we have to, you know, give up everything and you know, follow you, we persecuted and hated, and we have to live a life of holiness. He's just like, you don't really mean that. And he's like, no, I do. And then he just keeps moving. 
I mean, he was no respecter of persons. He just said, this is, the, this is what I am. This is who I am. I'm the Lord. These are my commands. You either follow me or you don't. You mean like in my heart, like, you know, appreciate you? No, no, I'm saying when I say follow me, I mean like you've got to walk with me to this next town where people are going to yell at us for what I say, and you're going to sit there and be like, I'm with him, and we're going to go to the next town, and you're not going to have a, light, a nice place to sleep, and it's going to be difficult, and you will have to kill the sin in your life. That's what I mean. Like, you've got to follow me. And he's bringing that to bear, and he says that's the nature of discipleship. A disciple is a learner, somebody who follows Christ. And one of the difficult things about sin is how self-deceptive it can be. Another great zinger from the book of James, right? He talks about how if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, if the way that you speak and the way that you live contradicts what you profess, it is worthless. You are lying. And who are you primarily lying to? It's not to your family. It's not to your friends. It's not to your church. He says you're lying to yourself. It's a self-deception. The person who builds his life on sand keeps building his house thinking, this is solid ground. And he furthers his delusion. That's how sin works. That's what's so destructive about sin. What's the worst thing that can happen to you after you sin? Nothing. Right? One indulgence one deviation, unchecked, unconfessed sin over time, and nothing happens. And your marriage is fine, and work is great, and your school's going great, and you still have your friends, and things are going great and over and over again, and then over years, and then suddenly you wake up and you're in a dark hole, and you're like, how did I get here? This is the deceitfulness of sin. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I want to commit adultery. It's a thousand decisions not to confess the smaller sins leading up to that final one. That is how deceptive sin can be. And so he says, when I say, do those who are Christians, they bear fruit. It's, it's this vigilance to say, am I walking? Am I following Christ? Right? Genuine faith will bring about good works. And to further the point, in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, he talks about, he's trying to get it really clear. He's like, when I say, here are evidences of false faith, he says this, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we've all sinned in these ways, even as Christians. But he's saying if your life is marked by this, he names them. If your life is marked by this, if you are unrepentant, if this is the pattern of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God because your fruit is revealing a rotten root. You are not built on solid ground. And so that is the warning. A genuine faith will produce good works. Christians will bear fruit. The second thing Jesus wants to press home is that Christians will endure until the end. There's an endurance of faith. One of the things to note about these two men is that they experience the same storm. It's the exact copy. 
but it's two different results because there's two different foundations. Foundations are only revealed when there's destruction, right? Whenever there's something to threaten a house, that's when the strength of a foundation is real. Other than that, it's going to remain unseen. But the storms and trials of life, they reveal whether our faith is true or not. You know, I, I experience this. I always get angry whenever there's like the hurricane warnings in Florida and you only get like a day and a half to figure things out. And I'm like, and I always think to myself, I'm like, why didn't they tell us a month ago? Like, who plans these things? You know what I mean? And then I realize, well, okay, that's actually not how it works. Nobody plans these things, right? They happen suddenly, and it reveals whether you have been prepared or not. And I'm from Pittsburgh. I don't, we don't deal with hurricanes a lot. But my fellow Floridians, some of you native-born Floridians, you're there, you've got the reserves of food, the battery packs, the generators, the flashlights, everything. You have had foresight. You understand. You are prepared. And so when the storm hits, you can endure. But for me, I lose my AC. I lose my Wi-Fi. My whole house collapses. And great is, it, is its fall, right? It's a terrible experience for me. But he says that Christians are going to be marked by this endurance because they have the proper perspective. They're able to make it through because they've prepared their hearts. They're built on this proper foundation. There's a, a, a saying that the, the same uh, sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Right? The same sunlight is hitting, but depending on what it's hitting, it will have a different effect. And so when trials hit a Christian, it has the effect of revealing your faith and showing that it's genuine. If you think about in 1 Peter uh, 1, 6-7, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When your trials come, what does, he, what does it have on true faith, on true believers? It reveals the glory of your faith, more precious than gold. Not because God needs to know that your faith is genuine, but because you need to know. Maybe you've experienced that. A trial comes, you never expected it, and you're beaten and bruised, and at the end of it, you come out and you're like, we're still walking. That is God's gift to you to show you're the real deal. You have true faith. And so for a Christian, for a genuine believer, the trials and storms of life serve to reveal the glory of your faith. It's a foretaste of your future inheritance. But that same trial on a non-believer is a foretaste of their future judgment. See, this is one of the things to recognize about this parable, this, this little portrait. These images of the flood and the storm and, and, all the, and, 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 the, and the wind, these are judgment images drawn from the Old Testament. In other words, he's not just saying these are the trials in your life. There's a final judgment, a final storm, a final shaking of all creation in which everyone will be held to account. All frauds will be revealed. Your foundation will be revealed. We often think about our life merely in terms of our death, but there's a future horizon, and it's all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always talking about his return, and, the, and, and Paul is always talking about the return, that Christ is going to come back and judge the living and the dead. And that is the future perspective and horizon. That's the end to which we endure. But that should motivate a present sober-mindedness. God will reveal all things. He will bring about his judgment. There's a parable he tells, a parable of the ten virgins. Five of them are wise, five of them are foolish. And what distinguishes them is that the five wise virgins, they bring an extra flask of oil 
for their lamps in the night. While the other foolish ones, they don't, and they have to go back into town to get more oil. And then the groom shows up while they're gone, and he lets the wise ones in. And when the ones come back from town, they go in and they see a shut door. It's too late. Those are the pictures of a, a wise person and a foolish person. And the difference is, the wise one knows Christ, knows his purposes. They have a vision of the end, and they know that's the end goal. I'm going to orient my life toward that. I want to be ready. I don't know when that day is going to come. I want to be ready. And so Jesus is pushing us endurance, that there is a final goal and end. History is heading somewhere, and that ought to make itself known in our life. You know, it's... The book of Ecclesiastes kind of talks about this, where it's like, you know, a guy can build up his business, make all the money in the world build up storehouses of riches, and he'll be gone one day. He ain't going to take any of them with him. You know, you could build up a great business, you give it to your son, he's a fool, and he ruins it. You know, there's a great saying that uh, the, the, the uh, cemetery is full of indispensable men. Right? There's a sober-mindedness. Everything's coming to a head. What are you building your life on? I mean, Really? You know, the wealth, the prestige, the, the, the praise of men, all these types of things. This is not just a way to think about the world. This is about reality. One day, they will evaporate, and you will be laid, laid bare before the judge. And either your foundation will be Christ, or your foundation will be sinking sand. It will be judgment. It will be condemnation upon you. And those are, those are the stakes. It's a sobering image. What really are you building in your life? What is the goal? Why all this toil? I mean, both those guys building their houses are working hard. They're sweating. They've got goals. They've got systems and plans and all these things. It's not the effort. It's the aim. You could build your house, and it could be glorious, but it's on the wrong foundation, and it doesn't matter in the end. What matters, do you do the word that you hear? Have you built your life upon Christ? And I want to give you a portrait of that enduring faith. Think about the contrast to Judas, the apostle Peter. And what's interesting is Peter has just as bad of a track record. He betrays Christ three times. He's kind of a brash guy. It's funny, in, in, in uh, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, when they, rec- they record, uh, one, of, one of us cut off the ear of another guy. Just one of us. But John, in John's gospel, he's like, it was Peter. Guys, it, 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 was, it was Peter. You know, he's this brash guy. I will never, I will never betray you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, okay, okay. Calm down, Peter, right? And so Peter isn't this perfect Christian. He's not this perfect believer. But what's the difference? What's the difference? Jesus, in Luke 22, 31 to 32, Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Here's this great picture at the end of John's Gospel. uh, Peter, he sees the resurrected Christ on the shoreline, and he jumps out of the boat and swims as fast as he can to Jesus. And he's like, I'm sorry. I'm so, you know, he's contrite. He's horrified by sin, and Jesus restores him and says, I know you love me. Now go feed my sheep. Go strengthen the brothers. 
Now, in that whole equation, what was the difference? It wasn't Peter. It was the rock that held him. It was the rock that held him through his trials. A Christian, what, what, a person who does the word, it's not just it's not some superhero Christian. The person who endures until the end is the person, not the person that stumbles, because we all will stumble. It's the person that keeps coming back to Jesus when you stumble. Peter feels the, the weight of the failure of his life, but the difference between him and Judas is when he recognizes it and he sees Jesus, he runs to him. And Jesus restores him and says, now you go and strengthen others. And that's the same Peter that says, your trials reveal the genuineness of your faith. When he's an old man in his 60s about to die, and he's telling the church, he's saying, the Lord is faithful. Cast all your anxieties in because he cares for you. He's speaking from his life. He knows the, the rain came, the floods came, and the foundation held. And your house may feel like it's being bombarded right now. And maybe some windows are shot out. And maybe some of the tiles are missing. And maybe some of your shingles are, you know, they're flying off the roof and and all this stuff. And it's shaking. But you will look up one day and the house will stand. And you will realize it stood because the Lord Jesus Christ was with you in that house. He gave his life for you. He was shaken for your sake that you might live forever founded on his foundation on his rock. So that's important of enduring faith. Not perfect, not superhero Christian, but faithful Christian who keeps coming back, that believes the grace of God, that continues and trusts that when the storm comes, the foundation will hold you. I recently sent my sister the footprints in the sand poem. You know, anyone heard that one? It's kind of a Christian cliche. And uh, it's this, you know, it's this poem where this person's saying, you know, there's two tracks of footprints in the sand, and that's that person in Jesus. And then at some point, it's only one uh, trail of footprints. And the person who writes the poem is like, well, Jesus, that was the hardest point in my life. You know, and there's only one set of tracks. Where were you? Why, why did you abandon me? And Jesus says, no, that's when I carry you. You know, but I sent that to my sister as a joke. You know, as like an ironic Christian thing. But I didn't realize she had never read that before. And she responded. She was like, Brian, that was so beautiful. <laughs> you know? And so I texted, well, you know, we got to live, laugh, and love, too, you know? And, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, it struck me, and I was sitting there, I'm like, but isn't that the truth? And really, it's, it's, it's really one track of footprints the whole way, if we're honest about it, carrying us from the beginning to the end. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the enduring faith is recognizing who holds you. And I'll tell you, that's the beginning of obedience, when you start to realize the one who is speaking to you is your Savior, the one who loves you, who cares about you, who is eternally and infinitely, unchangeably, immutably good to you. And he's the one who calls you to follow. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount, and we hear this response. We see that Jesus finishes these sayings, and the crowds are astonished. It's an interesting reaction. They're astonished. But being astonished doesn't mean that you believe or that you're willing to follow. In fact, in different parables, the parable of the sower, certain seed, they're astonished for a little bit, but then they fall away. So I don't think this is saying that the crowds believed or they entrusted themselves fully, at least all of them. I think it's meant to be a cliffhanger. You're supposed to read this. He's finished this sermon and these people, and it's like balls in your court, and the people are astonished, but the question is, will they follow? Will they actually entrust their lives 
Will they become disciples? And that's the question. And what's fascinating is they, they, they recognize his authority. It's not like the scribes. It's the authority of God himself. This uncompromising moral vision of the kingdom. And think, why? how did the most winsome, brilliant, intelligent, caring, loving preacher who ever lived end up with such a small church at the end of his ministry? How did Jesus end up, his favorite fanboys had left him? Because every time he spoke, he forced the issue. He put a fork in the middle of the road for you. Are you going to trust and obey or not? He presses the issue. And that issue is being pressed before you today. You can't leave here and go, that's an interesting study about things that happened back then. No, the Spirit of God who inspired these words, the very Spirit of Christ himself is talking to you. Not in general you, specific you. What is your foundation built on? Have you been living a fraudulent faith? Are you on sinking sand? And Jesus presents that to you. And this is the grace of our Lord. You have an opportunity. You can get off the sand onto the rock. And he will have you. But it will be on his terms, not yours. And the grace of God is that he gives us all these days. But one day you're going to run out of tomorrows. One day the door will shut and the lock will click. And you will be outside. And we don't know when that day is going to come. But you have a chance now. Where are you? What is your foundation really on? Come to Christ. Repent. He will have you. He will restore you. He will be your good shepherd. He will reconcile you to God. But the ball's in your court. Let's pray.